Chapter Seventeen of the Tragic Bride. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Tragic Bride by Francis Brett Young. Chapter Seventeen. All that afternoon and evening, Mrs. Payne watched them. The role of detective was unnatural to her, and once or twice she couldn't help feeling that it was unworthy and that she herself was an ogress, that they were so young and so unsuspicious. She had an impression not that they were deliberately hiding anything from her, but that the understanding between them somehow tacitly excluded her from their intimacy. She felt out of it at Lapton, hovering impotently on the edge of the magic circle that their passion had created. The strangest thing of all about this amazing relation of theirs was its air of innocence. She was so keenly aware of this, and felt herself so likely to fall a victim to the idea's persuasions, that she had to make an unusual effort to remain awake and alive to her plain duty, and to the fact that this simple and natural love affair was a crime against society, a disaster that might wreck not only Considine's home, but all Arthur's future. She could not make up her mind what to do, and this unsettled her, for in the ordinary way she was a woman of determination who acted first and afterwards considered the propriety of her actions. Her first impulse was to go straight to Considine and say, I told you so. This course presented her with the opportunity of an easy triumph and was in keeping with her downright traditions but in this case she was not in the least anxious to make a personal score. She saw that if she told Considine she would be firing the train to an explosion that might end in nothing but useless wreckage. Considine, for instance, admittedly touchy on the subject of Gabrielle, might refuse to believe her and show her the door. Arthur would be forced to leave Lapton, and she thought too highly of Considine's influence on him to run the risk of a relapse. On the other hand, Considine might believe her, and put the very worst construction on what she told him. She saw the possibility of Arthur's being landed in the divorce court, which was unthinkable. She abandoned the idea of approaching Considine at all. The next course that suggested itself was that of tackling Arthur, but the atmosphere of mistrust, if not of actual hostility, that at present involved their relations made her think twice about this. She could not dare to treat Arthur as a normal person, for she knew that his hold on normality was recent and precarious, and feared that a violent or passionate scene might undo in a moment all the developments that had been accomplished in the last six months. Even if they escaped this catastrophe, it was possible that she might offend him so deeply as to lose him. There remained Gabrielle, and though she knew that she was old enough to speak to Gabrielle with the authority of a mother, she felt that this would be impossible at Lapton. It was a curious attitude that she found difficult to explain, but it seemed to her that to tackle Mrs. Considine in her husband's house was dangerous, that it would give to Gabrielle an unreasonable but inevitable advantage. 
At Lapton, Mrs. Payne felt she was a stranger, insecure of her ground, and therefore in an inferior position, and this struck her more forcibly when she reflected that, though she was confident of the rightness of her conclusions, the actual evidence that she possessed was extremely small. She admitted to herself that it would be difficult to carry her point on the strength of looks and blushes, and was thankful that she had not been betrayed by her instincts into hasty action. Lying sleepless on her bed that night, with her eyes open in the dark, she evolved a new plan that would not only give her the advantage of choosing the site of the coming struggle, but would eliminate the uncertain element of Considine, and probably provide her with evidence to strengthen her charge. This change of plan involved a duplicity against which her straightforward nature rebelled, but with Arthur's future at stake she would have stopped at nothing. After breakfast on the Monday morning she went to Considine in his study, thanked him for his kind consideration, and confessed that she had been needlessly alarmed. Considine gracefully accepted this confession, and the implied apology, assuring her once more that there was really nothing to worry about. Then, very carefully, she made another suggestion. It was usual at Lapton for the pupils to go home for a long weekend at half-term. She wondered if Mrs. Considine would like to come back to Overton with Arthur. The rest and change would do her good, and it would be interesting for Gabrielle, who had seen so little of England, to visit Cotswold. Mrs. Payne promised to take great care of her. She gave her invitation in a way that suggested that it was an attempt to make amends for her suspicions. It conveyed at the same time an implicit confidence and an anxiety to please. Considine tumbled headlong into her trap. He thanked her for her invitation, saying that he had no objection, but that Gabrielle, of course, must decide for herself. His tone made it clear that such a visit must be regarded as a condescension. The Halbertons, he said, had been begging Gabrielle for a long time to spend a week with them, but she was devoted to Lapton. "'At any rate, I may ask her,' said Mrs. Payne. "'Certainly, certainly. You'll find her in the garden.' Mrs. Payne was in some doubt as to what Gabrielle's answer would be. She moved to the proposal obliquely, feeling like a conspirator, and one so unused to conspiracy that her manner was bound to betray her. They began by talking about the gardens at Overton, the beauty of Cotswold Stone, the essential difference of her country from that in which Lapton lay. "'You can't know England,' she said, "'until you've seen the Vale of Evesham.' She didn't care twopence halfpenny for the Vale of Evesham. She was just talking for time. Gabrielle listened to her very quietly, and Mrs. Payne took her silence for evidence that she was playing her hand badly. This flustered her. She became conscious of the fact that nature had built her too roughly for diplomacy. Not daring to hedge any longer, she blurted out her invitation, and Gabrielle, instantly delighted, accepted, transforming herself, in Mrs. Payne's mind, from a subtle designing creature 
into something very like a victim. So, for one moment she appeared, but in the next Mrs. Payne felt nothing but exultation at the successful beginning of her plan. "'Arthur has told me that there are nightingales at Overton,' said Gabrielle dreamily. "'I wonder if I shall hear one. There are no nightingales in Ireland or in this part of England.' And although Mrs. Payne could hardly accept an interest in ornithology for explanation of her readiness to come to Overton, she was quick to promise that Nightingale should be in full song at the next weekend. Thus, having laid her plans, she resisted, though with difficulty, all her impulses to continue her search for evidence. It was hard to do so, for all through the evening Gabrielle and Arthur were together in her presence and she found it impossible not to watch them out of the corner of her eye or strain her ears to catch what they were saying. But she realized that the least slip at this stage might ruin her chances of success, and devoted her attention, or as much of it as she could muster, to Considine. Next morning, with a sense of successful strategy, she returned to Overton by an early train. The rest of the week was, for her, a period of acute suspense. For Gabrielle and Arthur it was one of delightful anticipation. On Friday, at midday, Considine drove them to Totnes Station, the scene of their last parting, and set them on their journey. They watched him standing serious on the platform as the train went out, and when they lost sight of his tall figure at a curve in the line, it seemed to them as though the last possible shadow had been lifted from them. In the first part of their journey, a soft rain hid the shapes of the country through which they passed, so soft that they could keep the windows open, and yet so dense as to give them a feeling of delicious loneliness, for they could see nothing but the grassed embankments starred with primroses. All through the Devon valleys and over the turf moors of Somerset this weather held. It was not until they had changed at Bristol and crept under the escarpment of the lower Cotswolds that the air cleared. At a junction below the southern end of Breeden they emerged in an air that this vast sheeting of fine moisture had washed into a state of brilliant clarity. The evening through which they drove to Overton was full of birdsong and sweet with the smell of young and tender green. There was not a breath of wind, but the sky was cool, and into it the old trees lifted their branches with an air of youth and vernal strength. When the road climbed, scattered woodlands stretched beneath them in clear and comely contours. A hovering kestrel hung poised like a spider swinging from a thread. She swooped, and her chestnut back was lit into flame. The great elms that gird the village of Overton received them. Arthur touched up the horse as they swung past the church and a row of cottages with long trim gardens. Mrs. Payne, who was working on the herbaceous border in front of the house, heard the grating of the carriage wheels on the gravel of the drive. She took off her gardening gloves and came to meet them. Arthur jumped down from the carriage and kissed his mother. Gabrielle, also approaching her, 
put up her face to be kissed, and Mrs. Payne, who could not very well refuse her, felt that the kiss was a kind of betrayal. She wished, in her instinctive honesty, that it could have been avoided. It was a bad beginning, and gave her a hint of the kind of emotional conflict that she had let herself in for when she assumed the role of detective. What made it a hundred times worse was the fact that she really liked kissing Gabrielle, for her kindly heart warmed to the girl again as it had warmed when they first met. "'I'm sentimental,' she thought. "'For heaven's sake, let us get it over.' Gabrielle, however, was quite unconscious of the struggle that divided Mrs. Payne's breast. She was a child launched on a holiday with the friend of her choice in the most delightful season of the year. She didn't scent any hostility in the atmosphere of Overton, and this was strange in a person who moved through life by the aid of intuitions rather than reasons. She felt contented at Overton, just as she had felt contented at Roscarna. She was more at home there than she could ever have been at Lapton or Clonderriff. Her mind was as sensitive to sky changes as the surface of a lonely lake. Mrs. Payne had given her an airy bedroom facing west, and while the maid unpacked her things, Gabrielle stood at the window looking out over meadows, golden in the low sun. Beneath her lay the lawns, smooth and kempt, and of a rich and almost Irish green, on which the black shadows of cedar branches were spread. A tall hedge of privet divided the lawns from the vegetable garden in which a man was working methodically. She saw the pattern of paths and hedges from above as though they were lines in a picture. In the middle of the lawn stood a square of clipped yew trees, making a hollow chamber of the kind that formal gardeners call a yew parlor, with a stone sundial in the middle of it. "'What a jolly place for children to play in,' she thought. A blackbird broke into a whistle in the privet hedge and brought her heart to her mouth. "'Could any nightingale sing sweeter?' "'I think that is all, madam.' said the maid demurely. Gabrielle smiled at her and thanked her, and the girl smiled back. Like everything else in Mrs. Payne's admirably managed house, she was fresh and clean, homelier than the frigid servants at Halberton House, happier, that was the only word, than Gabrielle's own servants at Lapton. Yes, happier. When she came downstairs, Arthur was waiting for her. "'I thought you were never coming,' he said. Their time was short, and he was anxious to show her all the altars of his childhood. They met Mrs. Payne in the hall. She smiled at them with encouragement, for it was part of her settled plan to let them have their own way and so tempt them into a naturalness that might betray them. She, too, had the feeling that she was fighting against time. Arthur was full of enthusiasms. They went together to the stables, where he introduced her to Hollis, the coachman standing in his shirt-sleeves in a saddle-room that smelt of harness polish. He stood in front of a cracked mirror, brushing his hair, hissing softly, as though he were grooming a horse, 
and round his waist was a red-striped belt of the webbing out of which a horse's belly-band is made. "'Well, Mr. Arthur, you're looking up finely, sir,' he said, touching his forelock. Even the stables exhaled the same atmosphere of pleasant leisure as the house. "'I want you to get a side-saddle ready for Brunette tomorrow, Hollis,' said Arthur. "'Mrs. Considine and I are going for a ride over the hill.' At the end of the stables they encountered a pair of golden retrievers. For a moment they stared at Arthur, and then, suddenly recognizing him, made for him together, jumping up with their paws on his shoulders and licking him with their pale tongues. "'What beauties!' Gabrielle cried. "'Yes, they come from Banbury,' he said. "'I'll get you a pup next term if you'd like one.' Their evening was crowded with such small wonders. "'I can't show you half the things I want to,' he said. "'It's ridiculous that you should only be here for three days.' He would have gone on forever, and she had to warn him, when the clock in the stable struck seven, that they had only just time to dress for dinner. On the way upstairs he showed her his new study, with the bookshelves that he had bought in the last holidays. "'I do all my writing here,' he said, and then suddenly, but shyly, emboldened. "'It was here that I wrote to you when I sent you the cowslips.' He had never dared to mention the incident before. "'You didn't answer me.' he went on. Why didn't you answer me? I wish you'd tell me. Arthur, I couldn't. You know that I couldn't. A panic seized her, and she went blushing to her room. She was still flushed with excitement or pleasure when she came down to dinner. Mrs. Payne, in a matronly dress of black, sat at the head of the table with Arthur and Gabrielle on either side of her, facing each other. The arrangement struck her as a triumph of strategy. From this central position she could see them both and intercept any such glances as had passed between them in the church at Lapton. In this she was disappointed, for there was nothing to be seen in the behavior of either but a transparent happiness. They only want encouragement, she thought, and settled down deliberately to put them at their ease, a proceeding that was quite unnecessary, for the last feeling that could have entered either of their minds was that of guilt. So the evening passed in the utmost propriety. No look, no sign, no symptom of unusual tenderness appeared. It even seemed that Gabrielle was particularly anxious to make the conversation general. "'Oh, you're artful,' thought Mrs. Payne. "'But I'll have you yet.' They talked of Lapton, of Considine, and of the Tracys. Only once did Mrs. Payne surprise a single suspicious circumstance. "'I showed Mrs. Considine the dogs, mother,' he said. She's fallen in love with Boris. Yes, his eyes are like amber, said Gabrielle. So I thought I'd like to write to Banbury tomorrow and get her a puppy. Certainly, dear, said Mrs. Payne suavely. Bedtime came. 
Gabrielle and Arthur shook hands in the most ordinary fashion. Mrs. Payne, seeing Gabrielle to her door and submitting once again to an uncomfortable kiss, felt that her triumphant plan had already shown itself to be a failure. She went along the passage to her own room with a sense of bewilderment and defeat. She could not sleep for thinking. She wondered, desperately, if when all other methods had failed, as she now expected they would, she could possibly approach their secret from another angle, laying aside her watchful inactivity and becoming, in defiance of all her principles, an agent provocateuse. If it came to the worst, she might be forced to do this, for very little time was left to her. If she remained static, she would be powerless. Next day, she reflected, they had planned a ride over the flat top of Breeden Hill. She could not go with them, she could not even watch them, yet who knew what shames might be perpetrated in that secrecy as they rode through the green lanes of the larch plantations. Never was a better solitude made for lovers. Her imaginings left her tantalized and thwarted, for she was sure now, more than ever, that there was a secret to be surprised. She lay there sleepless in the dark till the stable clock slowly struck twelve. Then she sighed to herself and decided that she must try to sleep. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline